Hello, and welcome back to Popcorn. I know it's been a while, and I apologize. I seem to have gotten a little stuck here. If you're stuck when you're writing, especially when writing fiction, which is something that I sporadically indulge in, here's something to keep in mind. When I was in university, I had a professor who taught a fiction writing class. He had a sort of a maxim that he told us that he liked to work by. And he often said this to us, his students. It was, tell the story. He told us that he had it posted above his desk where he wrote when he was at home. Stephen King has been known to espouse a similar philosophy, although he phrases it a little differently. When you don't know where to begin, he says, start with something like this. Here's what happened. And as I was getting ready to start putting today's episode together, the same phrase came to mind, especially as I was trying to figure out a way to explain the problems that I've had writing today's episode. So, here's what happened. At the end of the last episode, I had mentioned that I wanted to do something of a comparison and contrast between Donald Westlake's novel The Hunter and the movie that it was adapted into, which was Mel Gibson's Payback. There's even a bit of a connection between Stephen King and this book. Back in 1989, King wrote a book called The Dark Half, which was a horror story about an author with a pen name that comes to life and starts killing people. It's a pretty cool idea, and it was pretty well executed too. In an afterword to the book, King mentions that the inspiration for the main villain in the book actually came from Westlake's writing. King even names the villain George Stark as an homage to Westlake, who wrote under the pen name Richard Stark. Unfortunately, I got stuck trying to develop a comparison. In the first place, I don't own a copy of the book. I had started reading it online at one point, but that's hard to do. Most virtual copies of books that you might find online are illegal copies. And though I started reading it online, after just a short time, I began to feel a little uneasy about the moral implications of what I was doing. Not only that, but there's something weird about reading virtual copies of books. King himself wrote a short essay on the subject of electronic media. It's called, Will We Close the Book on Books? It was never officially included in any of his collections, but it was published in Time magazine in the year 2000. In the essay, King explains why he prefers real books to electronic ones, and that he learned when publishing his ebook, Writing the Bullet, that most of his fans generally feel the same way. The essay questions whether ebooks will ever replace real books. King's emphatic answer is summed up in the final line of the essay where he says, Speaking personally, you can have my gun, but you'll take my book when you pry my cold, dead fingers off the binding. There's a book by a guy named Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. I mentioned it way back in episode two. The book has a lot of interesting things to say about the effects of internet use on the human brain. The one that's relevant to this conversation is about the contrast between the printed word as it appears on paper and the printed word as it appears on the screen. Believe it or not, there is a difference. 
There's something about words printed in ink on paper that makes them feel more permanent to our brains. We simply don't retain content on a virtual page as well as we do content printed on paper. I don't know why that might be. It's not my field. My point is that this was just the first of several problems that I had trying to bring this book to you, my listeners. I couldn't read it. Everyone knows the cliche about curling up with a good book, but personally I find it next to impossible to curl up with a good screen. I tried reading it on my computer screen. I tried reading it on the screen of my smartphone. I even tried projecting it onto the screen of my smart TV. Nothing worked. The medium may not have necessarily been the message, all apologies to Marshall McLuhan, but it was interfering with the message enough that I could barely make any headway with it. I did get started with reading the story and even started gathering a few thoughts on what I was going to write about, but I couldn't get anywhere with it. I thought of blaming my problems on Donald Westlake, the author of the book. Maybe the story simply wasn't good enough to hold my attention. I've used bad writing before in the past to serve as an excuse to focus attention on why I can't read a given story, regardless of who the author is. Sometimes it's even true. But in more cases, it's really just a poor excuse for being too lazy to persist. There are a few things I could probably comment on. Even after reading only one or two chapters, I did notice at least one startling contrast with the movie. Whoever made the movie decided to invest Mel Gibson's character with a sense of humor that is completely lacking in the novel. He does go through a few tragic circumstances, and he is badly abused by some of the other characters in the story, but he somehow manages to get through with a type of grace that's typical of a lot of the characters that Mel Gibson has played over the years. That grace is absent from the book, right from the opening lines of the story, in which the character harshly tells off someone who is offering him a helping hand. Telling folks where to go when all they've done is offered you a lift is not exactly a good way to endear yourself to others. And the character doesn't seem to have any particular sense of style either. Gibson's character dresses well, at least, and he's physically unremarkable enough not to raise any eyebrows in his version of the story, but Westlake's original character is another story. He seems to be frightening to others simply because of his physical size and blunt features. The author describes him as having a face like a chipped chunk of concrete and hands that looked as though they were molded of brown clay. Among other things, Westlake says this about the character. Women knew he was a bastard. They knew his big hands were born to slap with. They knew his face would never break into a smile when he looked at a woman. There's none of the value of Gibson's rubbery comic face in this man. The character in the movie is tough enough to be taken seriously, but Mel Gibson would have been hard put to play the character as he was written, without any warmth at all. Unfortunately, that's about as far as I got with the book, other than a couple of other interesting details that, cool though they were, rather dated the story. No one in this day and age would be able to get away with the outrageous cons and scams the character immediately starts to pull. After I abandoned that idea, I started thinking about Stephen King again. I was thinking about what King's perceptions of relationships can tell us about how he sees the world. 
Because he seems to take the write-what-you-know maxim very seriously, it's not surprising to see that King often writes about people with histories and character traits similar to his own. The first and most obvious example of this trait, of course, is writing about characters with addiction issues. King became an alcoholic in the early 1970s, and from that inauspicious foundation, he went on to cultivate addictions to prescription drugs such as Xanax, as well as becoming a heavy user of cocaine. His family staged an intervention in the 1980s, sometime after Cujo was published. He claims to remember very little about writing that book. Against all odds, he survived the problems that he had created for himself, gave up the booze and the drugs. Lesser characters might not have lived to tell the tale, but King did, almost literally. After getting clean and sober, he began mining his own history for traits for the characters in his books. I talked a little in an earlier episode about Father Callahan, an alcoholic Catholic priest, but there have been quite a few other characters created with these issues as well. I've always considered it more than a little ironic that Cujo was apparently written in an alcoholic haze, considering that one of the characters in the book, Gary Pervier, is a misanthropic, unrepentant, end-stage alcoholic himself. It's curious. If King was far enough along in his own addiction to have so clearly and accurately created such a character, it does give one pause to think a little about what his own state of mind must have been like at that time, especially considering the fact that he claims not to remember having written the novel at all. And his description of Pervier and the conditions in which he lives is nauseating and a little frightening. He spends practically every moment of his life sitting outside his abominably filthy ramshackle house, drinking constantly. He doesn't work because he's a medically discharged World War II veteran, so he spends the majority of his disability pension money on cheap booze. When he was eventually killed by Cujo, the rabid dog for whom the story is named, I was almost relieved for him. It's difficult to say how much Pervier was meant to be a reflection of King's own self since King didn't develop his drinking problem until after he was married, and I'm fairly certain that Tabitha, his wife, would never have consented to live in a state of squalor such as is described in the book. But one does get the feeling every time King creates a character who is an alcoholic that the character has to be at least a little bit autobiographical. That same thought occurred to me when King was writing about Ace Merrill in Needful Things. You may remember first meeting Ace many years before this story as one of the chief antagonists in The Body, the novella which was eventually developed into the screenplay for the film Stand By Me. In Needful Things, Ace is employed as a kind of a hatchet man slash gopher for Leland Gaunt, the principal villain in that novel. Being the bad egg that he is, Ace doesn't really need much incentive to be the heavy for Gaunt. Nonetheless, Gaunt seems to believe it prudent to keep Ace in line by cultivating, or perhaps reawakening, in him a taste for high-quality cocaine. And this is where we come back to my point. At one point, King describes the feelings associated with snorting cocaine, stating that Ace's head filled up with what he describes as something like a, quote, vague banana lemon taste. I suppose it's possible that King could have done a modicum of fairly judicious research in order to determine what the sensation of snorting high-quality cocaine feels like, but that's 
certainly not the way it feels reading the novel. One gets the distinct impression that King is speaking from first-hand experience. Contrast that with the character of Eddie Dean in the Dark Tower novels, specifically book two, The Drawing of the Three. In this book, he describes what it feels like when Eddie uses heroin, but his description isn't nearly as detailed or precise. To the best of my knowledge, heroin was not one of King's vices, and it shows. The intimacy with the drug that's described in Needful Things is almost entirely absent here, aside from a vague reference to the sensation of the high seeming to originate at the base of the skull. He goes on to include some medical detail about the nature of heroin addiction, its effects on the cauda equina, which, as he explains, is the bundle of nerves at the base of the spine where heroin addiction occurs by causing an unnatural thickening of the nerve stem, but the description is clinical, and it doesn't have that intimate, personal feel to it. By the way, when I talk about a personal feel, I want to make it clear that I've never done drugs of any kind myself, so I don't have any first-hand experience with what cocaine use actually feels like. Besides the addictions, there are other things as well, and it's not hard to draw a connection between King's personal history and the traits of his characters. Like fatherlessness. Stephen King and his brother David were raised by a single mother after their father left. The traits of a boy raised by a single mother are explored in a number of different books. Most notable of these is It, in which not one but two of the main characters are sons raised by single mothers. In fact, it occurred to me while reading the book that a possible train of thought had occurred to King while creating these characters. He couldn't decide between two different possible outcomes for a boy in such a situation, so he decided to indulge himself and explore both of them. Ben Hanscom's mother is a little strict, as any mother would have to be, raising a child by herself in the 1950s and a little neurotic about Ben's weight problems. But Eddie Kasprak's mother isn't even in the same postal code as a little strict. I don't like to use terms like crazy casually, because I'm not now, nor have I ever been, a member of the medical or psychiatric community, and I feel like a lot of people do throw such terms around lightly, but I'm not sure I could come up with a more appropriate synonym for a woman who cultivates the kinds of neuroses that would cause psychosomatic asthma in her only child. One wonders which one was the most like King's own mother. It's difficult to argue with the contention that some of Stephen King's best characters are those who are writers, and there are quite a lot of them. Here are 12 that I thought of off the top of my head, and I think there might be a few more as well. There's Paul Sheldon in Misery, Bill Denborough in It, Mort Rainey in Secret Window, Secret Garden, Jack Torrance in The Shining, Ben Mears in Salem's Lot, Bobby Anderson in The Tommyknockers, Tad Beaumont in The Dark Half, Mike Noonan in Bag of Bones, Scott Landon in Lisey's Story, Richard Hagstrom in Word Processor of the Gods, Johnny Marinville in Desperation, and Richard Cannell in The Road Virus Heads North. Of those, Jack Torrance has the distinction of being someone who was a writer and an alcoholic. King does explore the positive aspects of being a writer, but true to form, he also creates some pretty startling negative ones as well. They're fun to read about, but more importantly, they're also evidence that he takes the write-what-you-know maxim very seriously. As a writer myself, I can understand that completely. I've tried going against that advice a bunch of times, and I can tell you, that kind of writing goes precisely nowhere. 
fatherlessness, addiction, being a writer. Even regarding the supernatural aspects of his stories, writing what he knows is something he clearly has a passion for. And it makes little difference that he's writing about things that most quote-unquote normal people think are imaginary. Could you imagine what the world might be like if everything that was imaginary was considered second-rate and only those things in the real world that you could touch, taste, and smell were considered genuine? Away with your imagination. Away with your religious beliefs, because if you can't prove them, they must be inconsequential. As though proving the tangibility of things unseen were the sole criteria for value. Away with your passion, your love, your fear, your anger. The truth is that if you have a passion for something, it doesn't matter if it's tangible or not. What makes something real is often more than just the ability to reach out and grasp it. Love is real. Fear is real. Anger and passion are real. The idea of pure empiricism may be valuable in its own authoritative magisterium. The scientific method is enormously valuable in providing framework and context for our place in the universe. But I firmly believe that the things that science hasn't yet explained and may never be able to explain are just as valuable. The late Stephen Jay Gould, an American writer, paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and historian of science, developed a view of science and religion in which he referred to those two subjects as, quote, non-overlapping magisteria. The simplest explanation of this idea is that science and religion operate in equally important but entirely different realms. This was Gould's attempt to resolve the apparent conflict between science and religion. I won't go into all of that here. There are lots of sources where you can inform yourself about these ideas, including Gould's own writing. But I will say that I think of the differences between, quote, real and unreal, in what might be considered a similar fashion to Gould's contemplation of religion and science, they don't have to be opposed to each other. Something concocted from someone's imagination doesn't have to be considered less, quote, real, simply by virtue of it not being a part of the tangible world. It's a false dichotomy. You don't need to consider one any more or less valid than the other, simply by virtue of being empirically verifiable. I don't know if any of this is making sense. Sometimes my brain gets overheated and strikes wildly out in all directions. It all reminds me of my desperate attempts a few years ago to draw some kind of connection between quantity and meaning in any given piece of written text. My reasoning was that because you can't alter the quantity of text in a written work without simultaneously altering the semantic content or the quality or the meaning, there's some kind of parallel to be drawn between writing and quantum physics in the same way that at any given time you can know either the speed or the location of a subatomic particle, but that you can never know both of them at the same time. Measuring the speed necessarily renders the location unknowable and vice versa. I thought there might be a postulate there with the written word. If you change the number of words in the text, you change the meaning of the text. This, of course, is all sort of predicated on a layman's understanding and probably a an incorrect understanding of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I am definitely not a physicist.
And I still haven't figured out if there's anything sort of tangible to the idea. To be honest, I think it's more likely that this is evidence of the human brain's predilection for seeking order and chaos. Sometimes our minds see patterns even when they don't exist. I really went into deep left field today. I think I'm just going to call it a night right here because my brain seems to have gone to kind of a strange place even it doesn't understand. And while it might be a fun place to spend an afternoon once in a while, I don't think I want to live there. It's a strange alien place with few familiar reference points. I'm just going to finish with this. In the past, listeners have probably noted that I've ended most episodes with a quick preview of what's to come next time. I'm tentatively not going to be doing that anymore because I've started to notice that this kind of practice actually paints me into a bit of a metaphorical corner. Today's episode is a good example. I had fully intended to make an episode about the difference between the payback movie and the novel it was adapted from, but after having declared that at the end of my last episode, I realized it wasn't going to be possible. So there I was, making a liar out of myself. However, while I will not make statements any longer about upcoming episodes, I will reiterate my call for people to contact me if they have subjects they'd like me to talk about. As usual, if you want to reach me, you can do so by email at estrost one at gmail.com, on Facebook, on Twitter under the username at CyberneticTiger, or on Instagram with the username sdrost01. Until next time, then.